You are listening to the Family Business Podcast, the podcast aimed at delivering insights to help your family business thrive. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and each week I'll be bringing you interviews from family businesses and their advisors from all over the world. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Well, hello and welcome to the Family Business Podcast. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and I am really pleased to be joined by Greg McCann today. Um, Hi, Greg. How are you? Good, Russ. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Um, And today we're going to be talking about, um, amongst other things, redefining success for a family business. But before we get into that, could you give our audience a uh, whistle-stop tour of your career to date, if that's okay? Glad to, Russ. So I think it's the simplest way to put it is I probably wear four hats relative to my career in working with family enterprises. So I grew up in a family business and I'm still an owner in the business my family owns. Um, Secondly, I've been consulting with family businesses for almost 20 years now. Um, Third, I do some writing, speaking and coaching about family business that allows me to sort of distill some ideas. And then fourth, I just retired a year ago from the business faculty at Stetson University, where I'm proud to say I was able to lead the effort to create the second minor and first major in family enterprise in the country, and we think uh, in the world, and work with people like Family Business Magazine to create the Transitions Conference. So as you see, I'm fortunate to touch family enterprise from a lot of different aspects. Yeah, and it, it is a particular passion of yours, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, somebody once called me an academic entrepreneur, and uh-huh. I tend to operate pretty well in different environments and find they cross-pollinate nicely. Uh-huh. Fantastic. Um, now, today's discussion, as we said, is going to be looking at reframing family business success, but I think it would be worthwhile putting some of that into context because... Um, John Ward did a study around um, succession rates and success statistics for family businesses, and these are often misunderstood. Um, So perhaps as a starting point, we can sort of explain why they are misunderstood and and often misused, and um, we can then start getting into a bit of a chat around what we mean by success. Yeah, and I think, you know, acknowledging John Ward, certainly an icon in the field and a thought leader, and probably no one's contributed more than John. Mm. I think looking at his iconic study was done 30 some years ago in one state with one industry with a focus on does the business continue with family ownership? Um, I think, you know, if you jump ahead to about five, six, seven years ago, the Family Firm Institute with sponsorship from Joe Goodman's bid, why don't we do a study across the U.S., across industries, and second generation and older, and maybe reframe how families approach family businesses. So I think what that FFI Goodman study revealed was that, one, the average family business in the U.S. had changed their core business more than twice, that they had added a number of businesses through merger and acquisitions, And I thought one of the conclusions of the study that was just profound was that we should probably look at the family as the vehicle where wealth is often created and or transferred. Mm. And, you know, dovetailing with that, you see folks like Babson College Step Program, which is a successful transgenerational entrepreneur program, looking at 
what's the entrepreneurial energy in a family? So, you know, Ross, if you take that reframing of a family selling a business or transitioning out of that business, can't really be defined as a failure. And I think, unfortunately, our field sometimes does that. Yeah, I agree. And I think what's important there as well, as you say, about um, making a differentiation between, say, a family business and a business family or a a family enterprise where um, it doesn't necessarily have to be the same widget-making factory that the business was founded on that is judged as the success for future generations because it could be that the the business has changed directions two or three times and I know one of the other things I'd like to discuss today as well is the the pace of change um, in the world today and, and how family firms can react to that. Part of that um, conversation is acknowledging that changing direction, changing industry is should be deemed as a success as well. Exactly. I, you know, I think the context of today is we have exponential change. So you have to go from Blockbuster to Netflix quicker than you ever did. Yeah. You, know, you wouldn't want your parents to say, Russ, we've always been the Radio Shack people. Don't let it go down on your watch. Yeah. <laughs> I think the pivot is to say, if the family may be the continuity, the anchoring force, how do we develop families to deal with change? How do we help families become more agile? And to me, that's what I mean by family enterprise mindset. And I think that's something we can expand on because part of, if you look at some of the traditional um, governance routes for family businesses, Having a, a visions and a values statement or document is something that is generally recommended. But, but there's a distinction between defining what a business's purpose is and what the family's purpose is. And I think that has a, a role to play here as well, doesn't it? I think absolutely. Um, you know, I was at a conference with a number of South American families, and these were large families that owned multiple businesses, typically with no family and management. And the discussion led back to the culture and purpose of the family had to be defined. And so I think you're right, the values, the vision, and the purpose of the family, especially if you're gonna move through industries, has to be part of that rudder that drives the ship. Mm. And again, I, you know, the end of my email is now, Russ, the closing statement I have is the age of casual family business is over. Mm-hmm. And I really believe that. Yeah, uh, and drilling down into that, defining of the family's purpose it, it's it's quite an easy thing to say but to, to actually do that is a, can be a pretty daunting prospect for some people because it's sitting down and discussing you know their their sense of why why they're doing what they're doing and why they're doing it with who they're doing it with and in your experience where where should families go to start that process Well, and, you know, it's something they can't outsource. So your accountant or lawyer can't tell you your family's purpose. Um, And it's, it is, I think, deep, it's reflective, and the process is more important than the outcome. So I, I just last week finished up 15 months with a large family business that's been wrestling with this. And yet, you know, once it starts to crystallize. It informs the governance. It informs business decisions, wealth decisions, and it creates a cohesion in the family that 
you know, back to this family business mindset, I think if you want the family to be a plus, to be a strategic advantage to all your enterprises, this is the essential work. Okay. And so if people are looking at their, perhaps they've historically created a, uh, a family charter or a, a, a why document as to what their purpose is, if we're looking at the fact that the world is changing so quickly and we talked about the exponential growth, do you think it's important that these documents are or, or these values and purposes are reviewed on a continual basis, on a regular basis, or is it kind of set in stone? It's like the, the commandments no, I, of the family are this. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think they change rapidly, typically, once the deep dive has been done. But I think they have to be living documents. You know, I, I worked with one family. I mean, I wrote an article on one family where they took their values, their family values, and translated them into business values, and then came up with ways to assess those. So one great example was the family says we care about people. The business said we care about employees, suppliers, and clients. One metric which I thought was great was what's our regrettable turnover each year? Who did we lose we should not have lost? Wow, yeah. So they operationalize their values. And I think you're going to see that more and more, Russ, because if it's just a plaque on the wall, it tends to not be a living document. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And I think that that's the, it highlights the importance of it as well, that it's not an exercise that should just be taken um, lightly and think, oh, we'll spend half an hour agreeing some buzzwords and uh, and off we go. It, it is, as you say, a deep dive. And how long does that process typically take? Is, is there a, you know, a, not minimum time, but a, a time that needs to be set aside to be doing this? Yes. And, you know, I think if you had, say, two or three siblings that have worked together, they might be able to make implicit values explicit, in, let's say, as short as a day, perhaps. Mm-hmm. I think when you're talking about multi-generations with people in different roles and capacity, uh, a year for this process to truly crystallize, and I don't mean working every day, but perhaps over a year, is not unusual. Um, Building that cohesion gets very difficult as the family grows, as you have people who are just in the family or just in ownership and family. It becomes very complex, but I think it becomes necessary. And would you keep it exclusively to the family or would you involve any, um, we, we mentioned non-family management, for example, who are uh, taking some of these businesses multi-generational. Would you involve them? Well, you know, um, I think in a, in a sense I would and I have, I think of one family where after they did this work, we asked for feedback on the work from the board and from management, non-family management as if the family was living up to these values. So I, I think if you saw it's a three-legged stool of, you know, family and the owner slash board and management mm-hmm. between those three is very important. But I, I think I would start with just family in terms of the purpose. And although on family, I, I tend to recommend to my clients that you become inclusive so that spouses, kids over the age of 16, as inclusive as you can get talking about who we are and what we do, what we do, or I'm sorry, why we do what we do. Yeah. Everybody's part of that dialogue if they want to be. Mm. Uh, and that can be a difficult process if there are 
um, tensions, shall we say. Uh, and so would you always recommend that it's a facilitated conversation or do you think families can say this is our this is the plan we're going to go into this room we're going to discuss our purpose as a family that we can then transcribe onto our purpose as a business and that can be self-facilitated and successful yeah i i think you see both ways so you know the the other side of this and what when i consult i'm always looking for is what is the family's capacity for having the difficult conversation mm -hmm. And so even in my family, we brought in a consultant because we were just kind of stuck. And what happens is those topics that are known but undiscussable become the bumps under the carpet. And so every meeting, every decision becomes about those bumps we're not dealing with. As a consultant, what we work to do is say, how do we help the family build the capacity to talk about difficult conversations differently, more effectively with respect? Because once you can do that, you can do almost anything. So some families have that. Uh, most families benefit from somebody coming in to facilitate. Um, but I, you know, there's a continuum of families and their existing capacity, I would say, Russ. Yeah, I agree. Um, and given we're talking about reframing of success and, and particularly around family business success, uh, my view is that it's, it's more important that the, um, the family relationships survive if possible, if there's any um, confusion between the purpose of the business and the family. But do you think that that's a, a starting point for success? Does it come down to an individual level? Can you talk a little more about that question for me, Russ? So if we're looking at success in let's say a traditional sense when it when we talk about family business it is has the business survived and again we, we look back at some of the stats from the the ward study um the the ffi and goodman um study showed that that uh, wasn't necessarily the case and that different businesses were, were born out of the the family enterprise so if we're trying to um, generally, as a society, increase success for businesses and for individuals. At what level do we start to look at the success of, say, a, an enterprise? So, a, a prime example: you've got ABC Widgets who are making widgets, and you've got the next generation who who don't necessarily want to make widgets. They don't see it as a viable market going forward, and so they sit down and say, "What's our purpose?" And they're sat with their um, parents with their siblings talking about their own purpose as a family and a decision is made let's either sell ABC widgets or wind it up use those funds to then start funding other businesses that that to me would seem a success as a, as a metric but the traditional stats would suggest that that isn't because the original business has folded so where do we start defining where success lies my view is it's an, an individual and family level, so people should be happy. And if that means that they're not necessarily working in the family enterprise, then fine. But, but that's the starting point for me. Okay, yeah, I, I would agree with you and, and build on that with a couple comments. I, I think as part of the family's purpose, it's what does success mean? 
And, you know, uh, the two broad things that have influenced me is James Jay Hughes' work on the different types of capital. Uh-huh. So, you know, we all know what financial capital is and we get reports and experts to help us monitor that. Jay says in a family enterprise, the financial capital should be in service of the other types of capital. And he frames it as human capital, the people, intellectual capital, what everybody knows or knowledge, social capital, you know, the network of relationships we have. And as a quick side note to that, I heard someone from Microsoft last fall said, soon in your career, your value will be more based on your human network rather than your knowledge. Wow. And then some families add spiritual capital. So wouldn't it be interesting? And I was talking to a private wealth firm literally yesterday about how do we help families measure all these types of capital? Because I think that that's success. In other words, if we made a million dollars last month, but we corrupted our kids, anybody's defining that as success. So the, the measuring success relative to capital, we want to frame it that way. You know, if we're an agile family that deploys our various types of capital in ways that align with our purpose, then the, the second major influence for me has been, well, how do you increase a family's capacity? And so the number one trend in leadership with folks like Harvard, Cambridge, the Center for Creative Leadership has been what's called vertical leadership development. Uh-huh. And if most leadership development is horizontal, meaning we're going to put more in the container, more knowledge and skills in the leader's toolkit, vertical is saying, how do we develop the capacity of the leader? How do we make this woman more self-aware or this man more empathetic? And how do we help them frame complex issues? How do we help them deal with change more effectively? So those four agilities, self-awareness, empathy, framing, and innovation are what can be shown to make leaders more effective, just more efficient at what they do. So if we look at that in a little more detail, if we can. So a good example of horizontal leadership is me, for example, picking up a textbook and reading it. So if I wanted to, um, I'm not sure I do, but if I wanted to be an accountant, for example, I could pick up a book and say, I'm, I'm going to learn more about how that would work. What the difference between that and vertical leadership is, is the application of that and, as you say, the self-awareness and the, the, the ability to frame things um, better and understand systems and things like that. Would that be right? Yeah, I, I would say that's right. And you need both. You know, certainly if you want to be an accountant, you need both horizontal or technical development. But especially in a family, if you're going to try to sell an idea, you need to be aware of how you're showing up. So, you know, things from the Myers-Briggs to DISC to coaching may show that I tend to be very extroverted or I tend to be big picture and miss details. So realizing that, allows me to manage that, you know, some of the emotional intelligence work. And then if I know my brother Ralph always wants the details or always wants to keep his options open, I can frame my message so that it fits his concerns and personality style. And that's leadership versus just knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, completely. And if we look at some of the um, global trends that are affecting 
um, leadership and, and in particular the, the play into to vertical leadership. You've got exponential change, which we, we've spoken about. And one of the um, phrases you've used in, in an article that you kindly sent to me is um, preparing your business to, to see as much change in the next three years as perhaps we've seen in the last century given the exponential nature of, of change and how fast things are happening. Blockbuster Netflix being a, a great example. So exponential change is a, a factor that um, all businesses are, are up against. You've then got the globalization and inter, inter, interdependency, um, which, which also is a, a factor that is affecting businesses and leadership today. Entrepreneurship is in itself, uh, family and generational differences and technology and, and so vertical leadership is being seen as a way of tackling these. Could, could you give some info on, on, on why that would be the case and perhaps why family businesses are better aligned to vertical leadership than um, non-family? Yes, and, and Russ, you know, that my path on this started about six or seven years ago when I was director of Stetson's Executive MBA and we were able to put together an advisory group that we called the Think Tank. So I was able to be exposed to some of the absolute thought leaders in this field. Uh -huh. And in my discussion with them, they came to believe that vertical leadership might apply better to a family because the relationships are longer term. You know, you're going to be my son forever. Uh -huh. um, developing the whole person is more important than it might be for a, a company that isn't a family enterprise. And then the values alignment works so much with some of this work that gets into self-awareness and empathy and even character. So I think the, the profile of a family fits this work. And then I think if you say, we're gonna deal, you know, a thought leader on exponential change says we will deal with 20,000 years of change in this century measured by today's rate of change. I can't comprehend that. <laughs> it may be a century's worth in the next three years. So I think you need a couple things. You need the whole family, or at least all those adults willing to, to have a practice to develop their capacity, a vertical, vertical leadership development practice. Two, I think you have to frame a continuum of opportunities. You know, at Stetson, we found, we did an article and surveyed a number of the students. So many people in family businesses think it's a fork in the road of either I work there or I don't. I think especially as a family enterprise evolves, it may be you're on the family council. It may be your sisters helping run the family foundation to do charitable work or even some impact investing. It may be Uncle Fred's on the board, and it may be our two cousins are working in the business. So framing it as a continuum of opportunities and what the expectations are, and as you said, how do we all develop our capacity to deal with this better. So can I give you one example of how this vertical leadership may show up in a family? Yes, please, yeah, that'd be great. So let's say that um, I'm a leader in a family business and I think I'm a good leader and I get things done. And you're my brother, Russ, and you call me and say, can you hire my son, Ralph? Uh -huh. And I, I think, well, I know Ralph, he's a good guy. We can probably fit him in somewhere Yes. So very efficiently in one phone call, I solve a problem. Boom. That's about where half the leaders are at. Right. Let's move up to a greater capacity of where about a third of leaders are at, where they start to step back and see the overall system 
and maybe a strategy is required. So let's reboot this phone call and you call again asking about your son, Ralph. And I say, you know what, Russ, you have three kids and among all of us in the next gen, there are let's say 12 cousins. Why don't you and I get together with our siblings and craft a family employment policy or strategy to deal with this so everybody isn't dealing with a isolated transaction about getting hired? Uh Well, we can't do that on the phone, so that won't be as efficient, but I think most of us would agree that's probably more effective than having 12 cousins each evening get over the fence. If we, if we move one more time to where only about 10% of leaders get, you know, so I, at this level, I can still do a problem-solving approach. I can see the strategy, but I now start to see the culture of the family or the business. So you call me a third time, we're rebooting again, and you mention your son, Ralph, and I say, look, you know, all the cousins are in their 20s. They're all educated. They're good people. They're loyal family members but we want to evolve them into professionals that can work and make decisions together. Mm-hmm. What if you and I, Russ, and our siblings got together and challenged the cousins, the next gen, to craft a recommended family employment policy? Now, we, we still get to approve it. Mm-hmm. Instead of being loyal, compliant family members, we want to evolve the culture of the cousins into professionals who are engaged. That's probably going to be less efficient. That may take a year to get done. But I think we would agree it would probably be more effective at solving the problem, developing a strategy, and evolving the culture. So you see where that capacity is different than just more knowledge. Uh And that's possibly, I mean, first, that's a great example. And it's also possibly something that is, it's unconventional in the sense that we're often told, or up until recently, we've been told having more knowledge makes it better. You, you need to know as much as you possibly can. And I don't know whether you caught, um, not last episode, the episode before, we were talking to um, Dov Barron, who mentioned that one of the skills that he feels effective leaders need to show today is a sense of vulnerability. I, you don't have to know all the answers, mm-hmm. but being able to think of things in that way, to have that systemic and, and empathetic view of things, it is far more effective than perhaps just filling up the container with more knowledge. Oh, I, I, I completely agree with that. You know, in terms of family, every family I've ever worked with, the pivot point, the breakthrough has come th- from someone being vulnerable. So that, that's so important for anyone, especially a leader in a family. And then I also think, you know, these three levels I talked about, Russ, the, the first one tends to be, it's about me. I solve problems, I'm the guy. The next level is, it's my vision, but I want to get buy-in. So I'm going to slow down and get some input, uh-huh. some empathy and self-awareness. But this third level, which is called the catalyst level, your identity shifts and you no longer have to be the hero or if I can put it in quotes, the guy. It uh-huh. is about developing the capacity of the rest of the group. And I... Part of my passion, if not calling to do this work, is this catalyst level leader can let go. They can step up and be the guy, but they're not attached to always being the guy. Well, can you think of any better application of being able to let go of being the leader than in a family enterprise? It's fantastic, isn't it? And I think that also plays into the 
the way we are as a, a modern society in, in terms of traditional retirement models are falling away. We're not seeing people get to 60 or 65 and be presented with a carriage clock and off they go um, to, to the golf course. Uh, and developing the business and developing themselves in that way can assist with that, can't it? Yeah, it, and I mean, I, I personally think for most leaders, and I think of my own father, who's 84, retirement is probably obsolete. It's probably bad for their health. But I think letting go of the reins or shifting their role to a coach or senior advisor is important. Yeah. And from the generational perspective, more than ever, we have five generations working together. And in some ways, it's like five different cultures. So it's another great application of where we need agility and need to rethink these old models constantly. Mm. And also picking up on what we were talking about right at the outset around exponential change. The amount of change that somebody who's in a senior generation has seen uh, over their tenure within the business will be huge compared to somebody who's, who's had fewer years. But the pace of that change has, has sped up. So again, traditionally, that, that wouldn't lend itself to somebody who has been working for the family business, either, either founded it or, or been working it for 50-odd years. They're starting to see this. If you imagine that as a 50-page book, the exponential change has happened over the last three or four pages of this book. That the rest of the change was at a, a slower pace. That the taking that for somebody who has joined the business over more recent times, the, the worlds in which they live in are entirely different. And so, having those discussions and be they facilitated or self-facilitated around the family's purpose and the business purpose can help to capture some of that. That's an excellent point. And, you know, I think you see where the ability to have the difficult conversation is so pivotal. Yeah. I'm a big believer. I think Gen Y, this young generation, has an audacity that, that we need. I, I think traditional, conventional thinking models, mindsets have to be shaken up. And they're being shaken up every day with disruptive innovation. But I also think the wisdom and experience of the older generation needs to be factored in. You know, I, yeah. I sort of say the upside is when, you know, they can create Uber or Airbnb. The downside is when they say, Russ, I Googled brain surgery last night and I think I can get a shot. <laughs> yeah. There's an app for that. <laughs> the balance, you know? Yeah, entirely. And I, I think just, just taking my own example, I mean, I'm, I'm 37. I've got a 96 year old um, grandmother and I think if you said to her that there are phones now that means you can talk face-to-face to people anywhere over the world, she'd think, my goodness, that's incredible. But that change for us is, is just the world we've grown up in. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that iPhone's, what, 10, 11 years old, so it's not something that has always been around forever, but it feels like it's been around forever. And the continual changes we're seeing in just things like smartphones is an incredible level of um, pace that the younger generation can take for granted, but also that the um, senior generation has this wisdom and this role to play. Getting that balance right can be a recipe for success. Yeah, no, and this I, I love this conversation because one of the things you know, and I'm lucky enough, I'm in three innovation groups right now, so I, I'm exposed to a lot of thinking on this. My sense is in a broad perspective two things are happening. 
that we're dealing with innovation amazingly well, but we're losing intimacy. And so, you know, on those first two agilities of self-awareness and empathy, research shows that the current young generation is behind on self-awareness and empathy where past generations were, but ahead on framing and innovation. And given what we're talking about, it makes sense. They're connected, they're exposed to so much, they're able to deal with change, but they have screens in front of them so much. So, you know, in America, we have a somewhat famous commercial of a young couple breaking up at a restaurant booth by texting one another. (laughs) And I think that intimacy I see is being lost with ourselves. We have no time to reflect with our families. And even in the workplace, we just don't connect face to face the way we used to. Yeah. I agree. And and if we can pick up on self-awareness, it's it's something that fascinates me. And I'm, it's something that you may agree or disagree, but it's not something where you can all of a sudden you get a badge saying, I am now self, self-aware. I've done a, an exercise or I've done a, a test and I can prove I'm self-aware. It's a, it's a continual process, yeah. I find. But again, if somebody wanted to start to look at themselves a bit more and look at this self-awareness, what sort of actions can they be taking to, to help with that? That's a great question. So the research shows a, a couple things. So getting a coach can be really, really helpful. You know, a neutral place where you can get feedback, process ideas, look at your perspective. Um, two, self-assessment tools like the Myers-Briggs DISC, you know, those are all helpful to give you a deeper dive into who you are. You know, I say to people, if you aren't able to articulate your strengths, weaknesses, and blind spots, I think you've got some work to do. Uh-huh. I'm a big fan, and just in the last few years, I've been bringing it into my coaching and consulting of meditation. You know, groups uh-huh. like the Navy SEALs, the Chicago Bulls, even Google now has a mindfulness practice. Um, putting yourself in complex situations helps. International travel helps. Um, the research, every, every leadership model I've looked at says if you're not aggressively seeking out feedback, you know, if you're not trying to align your self-perception with how others perceive you, you're at risk. Mm-hmm. So, but as you say, it's, it's a practice. You know, Russ, if I, I said my workout practice is once a year I go listen to an expert on physical fitness, but I do nothing. <laughs> I think you guess how in shape I am. Yeah. I ask people, what's your leadership practice? And if it doesn't include, include a lot on self-awareness, I think it's missing something. Mm. And again, an observation from, from my point of view is being in a family business it is perhaps a safer environment to explore that self-awareness than if you're in, say, we've got a FTSE 100 company or a Fortune 500 company where you know, there, there might be pressure, there's more short-termism, it, it might be there, you're here to do a job and that's it, just, just get on with it, forget your self-awareness. And that shouldn't be the case with, with modern employers, but being in a family business, I, I would suggest, allows us a bit more um, freedom to be able to explore that side of ourselves. I, I, I totally agree, family businesses have the potential to offer that safe space. You know, I, one of my mentors, a gentleman I respect tremendously, who has just retired as chairman of Bush Brothers, you know, the Bush Beans Company. Uh-huh. He said his job as chairman was to look at the culture. 
again, that catalyst level uh, thinking. And he said, if the culture's right, you know, Peter Drucker's iconic statement, culture will eat strategy for breakfast. Uh So I often ask my clients at some point, who's responsible for the culture here? Because if you haven't created that safety, especially family members can get in this kind of bubble where no one's giving feedback where bad behaviors get enabled and the family becomes a threat to the business and even to itself. So it, it takes work. It takes practice. It takes courage. Yeah, absolutely. And again, linked in with that is um, the, the second um, agility that, that we've spoken about in, in terms of vertical leadership and empathy. And again, it's easy to say that you have um, empathy, but actually it's it's not a self-proclaimed attribute, is it? It's something that would, I could think I'm the most empathetic person uh, going and everyone that's ever spoken to me could think <laughs> I'm really not. Yeah. And it's their opinion that matters rather than my own. Yeah, we, we use a, a character framework that in a nutshell says, are you working to align your perception of your character with how other people perceive you or your reputation? And empathy has to be part of that. You know, a leader, you know, I just sent someone I'm coaching today that the Gallup organization surveyed people and what they want from their leaders, their boss, is trust, stability, compassion, which I think we could paraphrase as empathy and hope. Yeah. People mm. aren't going to commit to working on the weekend or giving up their evenings or sacrificing for the better men of the company if they feel like you don't care. Mm. My experience in families, people tend not to listen until they feel heard. So even slowing down and listening, you know, so, so often in families, we help them slow down and just validate what the family member just said. Not that they have to agree with it, but just let the other person feel heard. I think we're all so amped up, we're all so rushed that we have trouble really hearing somebody. Mm. And that, that empathy is where trust gets built, where cohesion gets built, where you really get good collaboration. And so I, I think that is something that's probably harder to cultivate than it might have been 20 years ago. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And just um, expectations in modern society as well, um, particularly with things like social media and, you know, we, we can give out little snapshots of to the world of what we want the world to see that that can be entirely different to what's really happening um, behind the scenes. And if that's amplified within a family that's then working together within a business, it can um, have a detrimental effect on that family. Oh, I, I totally agree. And I, I think, you know, that intimacy, my opinion is it's harder through social media. You know, if Mm. some studies say over 90% of communication is nonverbal, um, a text is all, you know, yeah. loses all of that. And, you know, in my firm, we have a rule that you did not process emotional issues anyway, except for in person or if need be on the phone. But, you know, we all know that email tends to amp up conflict, not deflate it. Yeah. Because it's, it's not only written in the, the person's, um, that person's point in time from, from the author's point of view, but it's also then read by the other party at a, perhaps a separate point and whatever's going on in their world is influencing how they read that. Um, whereas face to face, you can pick up much more, as you say, of the, the nonverbal stuff. Um, what, what's quite interesting to me, um, 
Do you know Gary Vaynerchuk, the American entrepreneur? No, I don't. Sorry. Um, he was um, always a Belarusian immigrant who has come over to the States. Uh, his dad started a family wine store and he's grown it and he now owns media companies and sports agencies and, and things like that. And he, he gave a keynote um, to a relatively young audience and he asked them for a show of hands as to how many people get annoyed when their phone rings hmm. because people are actually wanting to talk to them and most of the audience put their hands up. It's like we're not even using our phones to talk now. <laughs> it's the, you ring somebody and then they text back saying, sorry, couldn't talk, what do you want? And then you end up spending as much time texting them as you would have done having the conversation in the first place. And it's just, as you say, that lack of intimacy um, is, uh, and social media is a big highlight for this, is people sat behind a keyboard feel as if they're more able to um, push vitriol and, and hatred onto you than if they were face to face. And that must be the same in reverse in that, you know, we, we should be more willing to be able to express how we feel face to face and feel safe in doing so in order to be more self-aware and show more empathy. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. You know, a, a colleague of mine who I respect, Andrew Kite, often asks, how often do you talk? How long do you talk? And how deeply do you talk? Mm -hmm. You know, my brother who is succeeding my dad in our family business, he and I have committed to an hour a week phone call. And it, it's a it's a commitment. Uh, you know, I often have these in the car or uh, I'm waiting in the airport, but it helps because these assumptions I can have if I don't know all the facts or decisions that change because of factors I didn't know. It Sitting down and talking to people, I think, is hard to replace. And I think we're all a little bit seduced by the efficiency of social media. Yeah. But I think it's the wrong gear for an intimate conversation. Yeah, I agree. And there's so much room for misunderstanding just through the reading of a word or the, if you're not particularly good at grammar and you've, you've put something <laughs> grammatically incorrect in an email that can ruffle some feathers, that, that can all be avoided by sitting down and having these conversations. Yeah. And Russ, if I can add, it's a slight tangent, but I think it relates. Um, there's a wonderful book called The Chaos Imperative. Um, and the author talks about how do you create an innovative culture? How do you cultivate innovation in yourself? And it's the first time I'd heard the term white space. Uh -huh. And I think more and more to do this vertical development, to do character work, to be self-aware, you need time to reflect. And I think that's what these devices have stolen from us. Yeah is when we're in the grocery store or sitting on a plane, we no longer ponder our day or replay the last conversation or wonder if we could have done better in the meeting. We are playing a game or texting somebody or updating our Facebook. And so I could give one strong recommendation to everybody listening to this. It's create some white space in your life. Mm. That, that was going to be a point um, to, to pick up on. It's actually the daily habits that, uh, effective leaders show are to to have um, some form of meditation or, or or some form of white space um, to exercise regularly. Um, and there are some others as well which um, I'm struggling to to grasp to. But the, the, if these are daily habits, they they're self fulfilling. They they become far more effective because it's not something as you say go to the gym once a year and and think you're fit. Mm -hmm. 
No, I, you know, the research, uh, so Bill Joyner's book on leadership agility that looked at 100 leaders found out the top 10% of leaders uh, very often tended to do three things. A daily workout routine, sort of work your body, uh, a daily meditation or reflective practice, and then a creative practice outside of work. And I'm proud to say I had the first two, the meditation, excuse <coughs> me, uh-huh. workout. I had to create a creative practice because I wasn't artistic. So gift giving has become mine. But I, I think these are both a cause and an effect of that greater capacity. Uh-huh. And I, I think, as I said, if you don't have a leadership practice, you don't have a leadership practice. And I think these things have a cumulative effect over time. You know, I love somebody I know that's a meditation teacher described med- meditation as solvent for the ego. Uh-huh. The catalyst is able to let go or not be attached to having to be the hero. That's the kind of letting go that is clearly vertical development and doesn't mm. really relate to the horizontal technical skills. Yeah, and it, it does seem like a, a refining of our true self. The, the vertical leadership is is understanding. It's not just knowledge. It's not knowing how to do something it uh, sorry it, it is understanding how to apply that rather than just having the knowledge um, around doing it and it, it seems to me as if the, the picture that we're, we're perhaps painting around the the vertical leadership is a, it's a a constant journey towards fulfillment because no i don't think any bad can come from having more white space or having more time to be able to exercise and, and keep your mind and body fit um, and then if that's helping to cultivate better leadership that's helping to cultivate better businesses which is again a self-fulfilling prophecy that it, it has a knock-on effect to the societies around us and it's using these family enterprises for greater good for not just the family but the people who are then employed within those organizations as well uh, yeah thank you I, I, a gentleman i uh, got to know who has had a practice like this for 10 years said ultimately this is about being a better person and I, I think that's what we want for our family members. I think oh. we hope for from our businesses and our community. So, yeah, my I believe the rest of my career is going to be helping this family enterprise mindset evolve and helping people that want to. And I've seen such transformation with this vertical leadership practice. Um, I think the two are just you know meant for what we need at this point in our history and this point in our field. Yeah, I agree. And... I think it's an acceptance that the world's changed and that that's been driven through technology and the exponential changes that we've seen. But we almost need to not catch up because we're being dragged along by it, but take a step to one side, take a deep breath and uh, and kind of approach it from that point of view rather than being swept along with this technological change that's going to uh, create our inability to communicate at any level other than, say, typing into a phone. You know, a mentor of mine used to say, we have one choice in life, whether we want to be reactive or proactive. And I think Mm. being reactive gets really tiring, really dramatic, and really exhausting for everybody around you. Mm. I think developing this capacity is, you know, people like Thomas Friedman's new book, Thank You for Being Late, says this may be the biggest challenge of our generation is this capacity you know, McKinsey's new global economic report that came out at the beginning of this year said we all need to invest more in human capital, you know, that the best assets go home at night. 
that that's so much more applicable when it's your son or daughter or granddaughter or cousin where this is a permanent relationship where you deeply care about the entire person. So I, I think the application of these concepts to family, to me, just makes perfect sense. Mm. And so if you take an example where a family you're, that you're working with have, say, approached you and you identify this as um, something that you want to explore with them, how do you frame those conversations with, say, uh, senior generation or next generation as to... I don't mean to sell the benefits of it, but to, to help articulate why somebody, because this takes effort. This is not something that, as you say, you can fill out an online questionnaire and all of a sudden you're self-aware. It's, it's something that uh, is going to require buy-in, it's going to require commitment, it's going to require hard work and, and possibly some difficult conversations. Yeah. Where do you start in framing that to, to create the, that buy-in? So I, I think the, the framing of it, you know, and a colleague of mine said succession work is like going to see the dentist. You know, you should, but nobody wants to. Mm. <laughs> I think leadership development is a little more appealing. It's a bit of a wellness model, a bit of an aspiration model. But I think the second step after sort of introducing the framework is saying this is hard work. You know, this we're like fitness coaches. If you're not doing some sweating and straining, it's a problem. You know, no one walks out of the gym and somebody says, Russ, how did your workout go? And he said, Oh, it's wonderful. I didn't sweat or stretch or strain at all. <laughs> yeah. So it's really pushing the family to own that. And then it's saying, where are they at? Where do they want to get to? So there's sort of a combination, you know, we look at it as sort of three interla- interrelated gears of we're always looking to develop the capacity, the difficult conversation, the self-awareness and empathy. And that dovetails with or integrates with, is there a structure or rules or governance we need to evolve at the same time? And that can be a place to have a difficult conversation. The third one is, are we solving a problem which we might be able to do quickly? Are we developing a strategy which may take longer? Are we evolving a culture which is always long-term? So those three perspectives, the capacity, what level of issue are we dealing with, and what's the structure? You know, I think the seduction with a lot of consultants and a lot of families are seduced by it is the consultant comes in, create a lot of structure, but there's none of that deep work. Mm. And I, I've gone in many times years later, nothing has changed. You know, they set up a constitution, they, they listed their values, but there's no practice to it. And so family culture has eaten any strategy that's been developed. I think helping families say, see, if you're not working at this, you're not working at this. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's where it, it's also hard work from the consultant's perspective because it's that's where finding the right consultant to work with is really important because if it's somebody who is short-term and transaction-led, perhaps, that's not going to be as effective and they're not going to do the deep dive work that needs to be done that, that can take time. And things can often get or seem to get worse as problems and uh, perhaps difficulties in relationships come to the surface. Uh, And again, it's understanding that the longer term gain, hopefully, will always outweigh the the potential short term challenges. I think there's got to be a chemistry between the consultant and the family. I think there has Mm. to be trust because this is intimate work. And even, you know, the call I had this morning right before we started to talk, 
for us was with a family. It's collaborative because they know the family in ways we never will. They know the business or enterprises. Um, and so we, we evolved our thinking for a meeting in July, probably 40% because of that working together. Uh-huh. So the, you know, the consultant shows up as that expert that's there to fix things and solve problems and knows everything. I would encourage the family to find somebody who shows up more as a catalyst level leader where it's collaborative, but there's an awareness of culture, not just problems to solve. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, vertical leadership as a prescribed concept is something that um, you've actually introduced me to with with some of the conversations and, and emails we've been sharing, but from my own point of view, I think I'm benefiting from it to a certain extent at the moment. Um, you and I both know a chap called John Tucker, who is, um, I'm very fortunate to be mentoring me through some of the um, Family Firms Institute um, certificate program, but on the application side. So I'm getting the, the horizontal uh, and some vertical from, from that qualification. Uh, and he's helping um, on the other side of the, the application of that. Uh, and that process and experience for me has been enlightening I, I feel as if I'm more self-aware as a result of that so I'm, I'm testament to the fact that this is effective um, it's not always easy it's not always straightforward but but it is very fulfilling as an exercise to to be a part of you know and and I know John I think you're very fortunate to have him you know this vertical leadership development always happened through time you know we most of us hopefully evolved I think what this field in general, vertical leadership development and the model we use, leadership agility, gives you a roadmap, a series of practices, and some benchmarks for it. So to me, it's taken what's been embedded in good family businesses and good organizations forever and just kind of explicit and said there are proven ways to accelerate this because we need it accelerated in ways we never did before. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, I'm just conscious of our um, time here on the, on the recording. Um, and what I ask um, any guest or all guests that, that um, we're lucky enough to have on the podcast is if you could offer one tip to family businesses, um, what would it be? Do kind of a gut check or check with your heart and decide if you want to be proactive and invite your family to develop a shared leadership practice? I think that's the ultimate question. Fantastic. Thank you. And just in terms of people finding out more about you, I I get the impression from the conversation we've had that people will want to find out more about this and more about you. Where can they start with that? Uh, I'm off all social media, so they won't be able to find me. Russ. No, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, my, my website is greg, G-R-E-G, hyphen McCann, M-C-C-A-N-N.com. And there's some links to information about me and resources that we talked about. Fantastic. And um, before we go, is there anything else um, that you think we should have covered that I've left out? No, I'd like to thank you. You certainly made this enjoyable and I I think helped uh, put voice to what your listeners wanted to hear. And I think this uh, family business podcast series is a real contribution to the field. So on behalf of the field, I'd just like to thank you. Thank you. Very kind. And what we'll do in the 
show notes is put links into uh, your website um, on there so that people can get in touch um, with you. Um, and hopefully um, you'll agree to come on the show again another time because um, I found it a fascinating conversation and a really enjoyable one. So thank you. I, I would welcome the opportunity. You're very gracious. Thank you. That's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to leave us a review, please feel free to do so on iTunes. If you want to get in touch, you can find out more information at www.fambizpodcast.com. We'll see you again soon.